All right, so uh, I need to tell you that as I was writing this message this week, it was originally going to be one message, um, but as I wrote it this week, I realized it's going to have to be a two-parter, right? So there's part one and part two. Somebody told me recently that there's a fine line between uh, a long sermon and a hostage situation. Um, so that being said, and in light of that, I had to make one message into two messages so that we could really get into all of it without cutting corners, without moving too fast, and because, let's be real, we got second hour stuff, there's gas lights happening today, and there's NFL on TV, so we want to make sure that we watch that. Also, uh, I stayed up till 2.30 a.m. last night watching Colorado beat Colorado State because um, I am absolutely like, in love with Deion Sanders. I love Coach Prime, everything the dude says, like, I, I'm, all, I'm all about it. So um, I've had like six cups of coffee this morning. Um, so the way we take notes at Adventure is we use our phones to take pictures of the screen because I tend to talk really fast when I don't have six cups of coffee. So today's going to be really interesting. Um, but just keep in mind that, that really to kind of get the full picture of what we're talking about, um, you're going to need to come back next week. Uh, so that we can re really kind of get the, the whole picture and see the full story uh, together. So I want to do this real fast. Let me do some really quick review, uh, and then we're going to hop into it, right? So we, we started looking at Jesus' life, looking at Jesus' ministry, his ways, his teaching, way back at the beginning of the summer. And what we learned was this. When Jesus began his public ministry, like when Jesus started preaching and teaching and leading and, and making disciples and, and healing people and impacting people's lives, right, when Jesus began that public ministry, he really preached one sermon over and over and over and over and over again everywhere he went. And it, it was real simple. It sounded like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and what that means is this. I said last week, here's what this means. If you're going to take Jesus' sermon and just kind of tease it apart a little bit, here's what it means. The word repent means this, that you can reconsider, that you can rethink, and that you can rework your strategy for how you plan on living your life, and what you ultimately think, hope, count on, or believe will give you the life that you say that you want. And that's really what Jesus kind of came offering. Because prior to that, that, that wasn't an option. I mean, prior to that, like Matt was saying, it, it was just you're kind of held to the law, and if you failed, then you failed. If you broke the law, then you broke the law. There was no way to kind of rework, reconsider. There was no opportunity to say, okay, from now on, but then Jesus comes and he offers us something different. And, and here's why, right? Because of Jesus, because Jesus makes it possible for all of us, every one of us, to live every moment of, of every day connected to a God who loves us, who likes us, and wants his unique goodness for us. And ultimately, that's, that's what makes all of this possible. And, and let me just say this. This isn't some prosperity gospel, right? I said this last week when we kicked off the series. This is not us saying that, like, listen, you'll be healthy, wealthy if you just believe, right? If you just do this, right? But here's what could be real for us. Here's what's on the table. Because of, and really only because of what Jesus makes possible in our daily lives, what you and I can experience is the truest and realest form of peace, abundance, security, and safety on this side of heaven. That's what Jesus makes possible for us. But here's the deal. It's his brand of peace and abundance and security and safety. See, a lot of us, I think we, we just kind of assume that, that that is something that we only experience, you know, maybe after we pass away, right? Once we make it to heaven, 
right? That's at that point, everything's going to be fine. So I, I just have to make sure that I kind of eke out whatever kind of existence I can until that day comes because I've, I've trusted Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I've got my get out of hell free card. I've got my, my kind of eternal retirement plan set aside because of Jesus, right? And so I'm just kind of waiting for that. And Jesus would say, and we're going to talk about this today, that's actually not what I, not, that's not all that I want for you. Yeah, that's great, but actually there's a life on this side of heaven that's possible, and Jesus makes it that way. And what we said, what we said last week, and this is going to continue to come up each week in, in this series, is, is when it comes to that kind of life, we have a critical role and a critical part to play in this. We are not off the hook, right? And where this whole series, A House on Fire, comes from and what it's based on is, is really a metaphor or a parable, right? That's what they're called in, in the Bible, that, that Jesus used when he taught and he preached his most famous sermon, right? There's this sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters in, in Matthew, is he, he unpacks things like marriage and divorce and sexuality and sexual purity and, and integrity and anger. He talks about anxiety. He talks about pain. Parenting. He talks about dealing with conflict with friends and family, but, but really it's how he wraps things up, or as we like to say at Adventure, how Jesus lands the plane, right? Here, here's what we find in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Jesus says this, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise, wise means skilled, it doesn't have anything to do with intelligence, it means that you're skilled. Wisdom in scripture means skill, like it's skilled living, Right? So everybody who hears these words of mine and does them will be like someone who is skilled at life, who builds his house on the rock, like the song we just sang. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And then Jesus says this, and everybody who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish person. And again, has nothing to do with intelligence. Foolish in scripture means this, empty and useless. Someone who's empty, someone who's useless. So somebody who, who hears Jesus' words and says, that's great, I'm not going to do anything about it. Jesus says, that's going to be like an empty and useless person who builds their house on sand. And when the rains fall, fall and the floods come and the winds blow and beat against that house, it will fall and great will be the fall of it. So what Jesus does is he compares our lives to houses. He compares our lives to homes. And it doesn't matter, right? You may be saying, well, I don't live in a house, right? It doesn't matter if you live in an actual house, if you live in an apartment, a condo, a patio home. Here's what matters. What Jesus is getting at and what's important for us to kind of take away from this is when it comes to your house, it's, more than, it's, it's about more than just brick and mortar studs and drywall. Like where we live, it's not just a house. It's not just a structure, there's a difference between a house and a home, right? Where we live, that's, that's home. That's home base. Home is where we run to. Home is where we keep the things that matter to us. Home is usually where we start our day, and it's usually where we come back to at the end of our day. Our homes are what we build our lives around. That's what our homes are. Our homes are what we build our lives around. So for the sake of the next couple of months, as we unpack this teaching together, when you think about your house, whatever it is, when you think about your home, think of it as kind of an outward reflection or representation of your life. And so the other reason that Jesus uses this metaphor, though, is, is so that we'll begin to kind of really understand what's at stake, what's truly at stake. Because here's the deal. It's really easy to come into a room like this and listen to someone like me talk about stuff like this, and it just kind of stays in this world of, like, fictitious illustration. Well, that's like a nice metaphor. That's a nice story. 
Like we, we leave and we go home and we go like, story time was good, but, but when did the Broncos play? And will they actually be good this year? I don't know. Right? We don't know. Like the thing is, like it kind of stays like that. It's like, well, that was good story time, but let's get on with the rest of our day. But here's the deal. The reason Jesus uses this metaphor is because when you and I start to think about our actual house, when we start to think about our actual house, our actual home collapsing, like what would it be like if you pulled into your neighborhood or pulled into your apartment complex or pulled into like your, your patio home, whatever it is, and it was just, it was in rubble, like it had collapsed, it had burned to the ground. What would happen? What would your, what would your where would your mind go? What would your heart, like what, what would that be like? Jesus, the reason he does this is because, you know, a lot of times we sit in church and we go, that's a nice story. But if that happened to us, if we came home today and our house had been destroyed and everything and everyone that, that we love and everything that we own was destroyed with it, that is when we would start to wake up and pay attention. That would kind of shock us into to reality. And so the reason that Jesus compares our lives to houses is because sometimes we listen to Jesus' words like they don't matter. But when it comes to our houses and our homes, that's the stuff we care about. So Jesus is like, okay, I'll just talk about something you care about so that you wake up and begin to understand. And some of us, this has been our experience, right? It may not have been a literal fire, but we know what it's like to kind of watch our choices or the choices of others burn our lives down. And burn the lives of the people we love to the ground. So I think it's important for us to understand. Jesus is not giving us just some nice word picture. It's not story time with Jesus. He's telling us to wake up and pay attention. And so the reason for us that we're going to take a look at our lives as if they were houses and homes is so that we can be reminded of what's truly at stake. We're talking about our marriages, our kids, our families, our, our relationships. And so here's what we can do. We can take Jesus up on his offer to build our lives on the rock of his life of his ways, of his word, of his truth. And that's kind of what we started to work on last week, right? The most important part of our house is the part, the most important part of our lives, right? It's what, it's what our lives are built on, right? It's the foundation. It's what we just sang about, right? According to Jesus, what your life is built on will be the difference maker in determining whether or not your life is still standing after the I didn't see that coming moments in your life. Jesus says, you want to know what the difference maker is going to be? You want to know what will, what, what will make your life not necessarily fire, fire free, but fireproof? It's what it's built on. So this is going to be like the last thing I say in review mode, and then we're going to get into to this week. When, when it comes to the foundations of our lives, according to Jesus, the difference between wisdom, which means our lives will, be st will still be standing, and foolishness, which means our lives fully collapse when we hit any kind of conflict isn't hearing or agreeing with or believing in what Jesus says. It's that and it's acting upon what Jesus says is good, real, right, and true. And remember, I said that like we have critical roles to play in, in this whole deal. We have to actually take what Jesus says is good, real, right, true, and best and then put it into practice. I shared a quote last week that said, that said this, it's not going to make a bit of difference in your life if you just hear, believe, or agree with what Jesus says is a better way to live your life. And then actually, if you don't actually put it into practice and do what he's telling you to do and how he's telling you to live, it's not going to make a bit of difference in your life. And I think that's what we do a lot. We come into places like this and we go, that's a good story, that's good stuff, sounds great, I'm not going to do anything with this. And, it, and you can look at Jesus and say, yeah, Jesus, what you say is good. I believe it. 
I believe in it. I believe you. I believe in you. I agree with what you're saying. Yes, this is good, real, right, true, and best. Are you going to do anything with it? No. No. It's not going to make a bit of difference in your life. And so how do we do that? How do we take what Jesus says is good, real, right, true, and best and put it into practice? And this is really what's going to carry through our, our whole series and, and hopefully work its way into every part of our lives. Here's how we put this into practice. Shared this last week. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 12. Jesus gets asked, like, what's the most important thing in all of the Bible? And Jesus says this. He says, the most important thing is this. And he quotes, he quotes scripture from way back in Deuteronomy. He says, hear, O Israel, it's the Shema, right, the most important prayer in all of Judaism. Jesus says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. The word love, we attach emotion to it. Love in this day, the, the word love that Jesus uses, is, is a choice word. So Jesus says you love the Lord your God, which means you choose among the millions of things in your life that want to convince you to build your life on them. Success, money, influence, power, status, whatever it is. You choose of all of those things that, that present to you a compelling argument. You say, you know what, I'm going to choose God. I'm going to choose God among all of the static and all of the noise. And Jesus says the way we do that is with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And then Jesus says this, the second is just like it. You shall love, you shall choose your neighbor, the people in your life, love them as you would choose for and love yourself. And Jesus says there's nothing, there's nothing greater than these. And like I said, when Jesus is saying this, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, and here's what it says, right? Moses, when he kind of is delivering this message from God to the people uh, of Israel, he, he goes on and says this, And these words I command you today, they shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, as you live your life. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be like frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts the foundation of your house and on your gates, which is your front door. And so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to kind of follow Jesus into this metaphor. We're going to look at our lives as, as if they were houses. So last week we talked about the foundation, and today we're going to talk about the front door. And then we're just going to kind of move like room by room by room through this kind of metaphorical house that is our lives. So when we think about front doors, right, we don't typically think about the importance of doors. They just kind of are where they are. We go in, we go out. But let me just tell you this. Like, I had like an existential, like, what, why does a door exist, right? These are the kinds of questions that go through my head, right? So I kind of chased that rabbit down the hole. And here's what, here's, what I, here's what I came up with, right? The reason a door exists is to be a marker and a distinct boundary, which means this. When you walk through a door, you move into a different room. You move into a different space. You, there's a different environment, right, on one side of the door than on the other. So a door exists to kind of be a boundary and a marker to separate space. So that's what a door is, but what does a door do, right? Here's what a door does. The first role and responsibility of a door, especially your front door, is to protect those inside your house, from the outside weather, from outside intruders, from thieves, and for, from any unwanted or unwelcome guests, right? And that's also why we have ring cams, because now we can tell if we want to actually go answer the door or not. Like, you can now screen. You don't have to screen calls. You can screen people. It's great. That's why we have one at our house. It's like, who is it? It's our neighbor. We're not home. 
right? No one make a sound. Um, but here's the thing I love, right? When, when Moses tells us that, when Moses tells the, the Israelites to kind of write the Shema, right, that prayer, love the Lord your God on their doorposts and on their gates, it was to kind of be this sign and this signal of what their house was built on. But it was also meant to serve as a reminder and as that there's a hard and fast boundary line between the ways of the world out there and the truth of God in here. Like there's a boundary. It's different in here than it is out there. This house operates on God's truth. But it was also a reminder for them that we've got to protect and provide shelter for ourselves and those who are in our lives, who exist in our homes, from anything or anyone on the outside that would want to hurt them, harm them, or steal from them. And there's, there's an even more famous example of this in Scripture in, in Exodus. So God tells Moses to have the Israelites, who are being held captive in, in slavery in Egypt, he tells them to, to sacrifice a lamb and then spread its blood over the, the, the gates and the doorposts of their houses. So that when the angel of death comes as kind of like the final plague in Egypt to kill all the firstborn sons in the land, the angel will see the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and on their gates, their front doors and their foundations, and will pass over their houses. That's where the Passover comes from. So the doorway and the blood of the lamb that were on that doorway was, was a sign. It was a signal that there's a boundary. Who we are in here and what we stand for inside this house, what our lives are built on inside this door, it's different than what's out there. What happens inside this place is different than what happens out there. And the door with the blood of the lamb on it protected those on the inside from death on the outside. My friend Jim says it like this, that the door marks the line between what the world says is normal and what God defines what's good, right, true, and best and what will or will not happen in your house, in your life, in your marriage, in the lives of your kids, in the lives of your family, in the relationships that you have. So now we know this. We're not talking about actual literal front doors. We're talking about our lives, right? There are meant to be markers and boundaries in our lives, and when it comes to life, when we read scripture, we have specific roles and responsibilities as people when it comes to not only setting those markers and setting those boundaries, but also being those markers and boundaries. Where regardless of what happens around me or out there around us, in here, in our life, in our marriage, with our kids, with our family, with our friendships, it's different. And here's the line. And on top of that, our lives and the lives of those people that are connected to us, they need to be protected from the outside storms and the fires and the thieves and the intruders and the unwanted and unwelcome guests. So, so Jesus, what he does is he, he takes this whole metaphor thing one step further. He sets the tone. He sets the example. He actually goes first and says, this is what it's like. He's not, and I love this about Jesus. Jesus is not asking us to be or do anything that he wasn't and still isn't willing to do himself. Jesus doesn't look at us and go, well, hey, I'm not going to do that, but you should. Jesus says, no, I'll, I'll go first. So here's what it says in John 10, starting in verse 9. Jesus says, I am the door. He's talking about sheep and, and shepherds and, and taking care of sheep and protecting sheep. And he says, listen, when it comes to what protects the sheep, what sets the boundary, what's the marker, right, it's me. 
I'm the door. I'm the boundary. I'm the marker. I'm the protector, right? And we go back to like that, that deal in Exodus, right? That famous story. That was foreshadowing Jesus. I mean, Jesus is referred to often in scripture as, as the lamb of God, right? The perfect spotless lamb. He was there to be that sacrifice for us, right? So it is actually Jesus' blood on the doorposts and foundations and front doors of our lives that save us from sin and death. Like all the things that happen in the Bible is super cool, all point to Jesus. So Jesus says, I'm the door. That's my job. I'm the door. If, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture, which means this. Not just hearing what I have to say, but doing something with it. With all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then Jesus says this, the thief, our enemy, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I, I, this isn't in my notes, but I, I thought of this this morning. I think it's important for us to realize, and I'm not saying this to be weird, but I think it's important for us to realize that, that Satan has specific plans set aside for each of us. He knows you, knows your life, knows your story. Not because he knows everything, not because he's like, you know, God is all the omnis, omniscient, you know, omnipresent, omnipotent. Satan's not that. Satan is not God's equal opposite, right? God is way more powerful than Satan. But Satan is super cunning and he's super organized, and he has schemes, specific schemes for you and your family. And what does he want to do to you and your family? He wants to steal from you joy, peace. He wants to steal that from you. And he wants to replace it with anger and anxiety. He wants to kill you. Like literally wants to see your life end. And he wants to destroy you. And there are specific schemes that he has come up with to get at you. And Jesus says that's what he's all about. But you want to know what's different between Jesus and our enemy? Jesus says, I came that you can have life and have it abundantly. The abundant life, what we adventure called the with God life. Living our lives with God. So what does it mean when Jesus says, I'm the door? Like, what's our role in that? Like, what does it mean for us to do something with Jesus' truth, right? In the same way that Jesus says, like, that his words and his ways are like a rock, like the foundation of our house, the same thing is true. His words and his ways are also like the front door to our house. And like the foundation, what we do with Jesus' words will be the difference maker, your house is either going to be built on a rock or it's going to be built on sand. It'll be standing or it'll collapse. Your front door will either draw a hard and fast line that will protect you and your family from those that want to steal and kill and destroy you, or it won't, and you'll let those intruders walk right in and have their way with your family. And I told you, right, that this, was, this series was going to get personal. Here we go. According to Scripture... Going by what Jesus says is good, right, best, and true, the primary but not sole role of providing and protecting, being the front door to the home, your life, your marriage, your family, your kids, belongs to the man, to men, husbands, and fathers. Now, don't, don't start drafting up your angry email, okay? Just wait. Everybody breathe, and if you do want to send me an email, you can send it to casey at adventureky.org, okay? Here's what you might be thinking, right? You might be thinking, well, here, like, I'm not 
I'm not one of those yet. Like, I'm not a husband. I'm not a, a, a father. I'm not, I'm not the man of the house. Young men in the room, let me just tell you this. You should be taking notes today. A lot of them. You should be taking pictures of the screen today. A lot of them. Women, wives, moms. This also is for you. It's also for you. Because like I said, it's the primary role, not the sole role. And there are some of us in this room that are single moms. And that means we've got to be that front door. Because there's not a man, there's not a husband, there's not a father in, the li- in our lives or in the lives of our kids. And so that means we've got to do this too. So this is not something, this is not some misogynistic thing, right? I'm just going by what scripture says. And I wouldn't say any of this if it wasn't in the Bible. This is not my opinion. This is what Jesus has to say about it. But when we go all the way back to Genesis, here's what we find. Genesis chapter 2, God is kind of wrapping up the, 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 the six days of creation before the, the seventh day of rest. And here's what he says. Here's what happens. Says, then the Lord formed the man, Adam, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man who he had formed. Skip down a little bit. It says, then the Lord God put the man in the garden to work it, which that word work in Hebrew means to provide for it, to make sure that it stays healthy. I mean, the man's job to provide for the garden was to make sure that, that everything in the garden was set up in such a way that it would grow and it would flourish and it would be healthy. He's there to tend that garden, to work it, to provide for it, and keep it, protect it. That's the Hebrew word for protect to keep anything that would, that would want to come into that garden and destroy it out. And then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For, for in the day that you eat of that, you will die. Now, I want us to keep something in mind, and if you're taking notes, this is something you may want to write down. Eve hasn't been created yet. It's just God and Adam. One author I read this week said this, that Adam was given the priestly task and purpose of providing for and protecting the garden and everything in it in accordance with what God said was true and how God determined was best. And I thought it was really interesting as I read that quote that that this author would say it was a priestly task. And then I dug a little more into that. See, priests back in this day were were the leaders and the, the facilitators of spiritual activity. They were the ones who facilitated worship in the temple. They were the ones who were there to explain the, the truth of God to people. They, they, their job was to bring glory and honor to God in everything that they did, but also to then lead and help others to learn how to do the same. But in the Bible, this is interesting, most priests also carried swords under their robes. Why? Why? Not only were they the spiritual leaders in their communities, but they also were the ones who were responsible for protecting the temple. Their attitude at the end of the day was this. If anything wants to get into this temple, it's going to have to go through us. So Adam was given the priestly job to be the leader in helping everything and everyone in the garden to bring honor and glory to God. Now, let me make sure, I want to make sure we understand this. He was given the priestly task of being the leader when it came to helping everything and everyone bring glory and honor to God. It wasn't. Adam was given the the priestly 
the priestly role of being the leader to exercise his authority over everyone at all times. It was a priestly task. But with that also came, he had to provide protection to everything that God created and given had given him, including and especially his wife. We did a, a men's series here uh, back in February. We talked to dudes for like eight weeks, and by the end of it, they were like, stop, right? But it was great because I think a lot of marriages and a lot of lives changed, but they were like, Can we, could, would you just let us up off the mat? Yeah, right? But one of the things we said back in February was this. A lot of men throughout history, throughout church history, they like to weaponize certain parts of the Bible against women, and it's just stupid, Right, they, they, especially when it comes to authority and power. They want to know who's in charge. Like, who's in charge and it should be us. Can I just say this? The, the, a lot of times the things that I'll hear, an, an, an excuse or a reason to justify that that's been given throughout time is this, that the fall of humanity came because Eve committed the first sin. Eve was the first one who was deceived. Eve was the first one who ate the fruit that God said you're not supposed to eat that. It's all Eve's fault. And so all women deserve is to wear the guilt and to serve the sentence for Eve's crime that cursed all of humanity. Let me just put something to bed today. Guys, Eve didn't sin first. Adam did. Adam's first sin was passivity. He didn't do his priestly duty of leading his wife. And bringing glory and honor to God. He didn't protect his wife from the serpent that wanted to kill her, wanted to steal from her and destroy her. And I think it's important, guys, we got to wake up and pay attention. God didn't tell, I mean, it's, it's right there. God didn't tell Eve that she wasn't supposed to eat the fruit. He told Adam that. And it was Adam's job to make sure that Eve knew. It was Adam's job to make sure that he led his wife in the ways that would honor God by sharing God's truth and God's word with her. And Adam didn't hold up on his end of the deal. And so when the serpent was leading Eve down a dangerous path, Adam never drew his sword and stepped in and said, hey, dude, if you want to get to her, you're going to have to go through me. In fact, if you flip over one page to Genesis 3, it gets worse Genesis 3.15, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and the tree was, was desired to make one, one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it and also gave some to her husband who, in all caps, was with her. And he ate it. It's not like Adam was just absent, which may be the case for a lot of us guys. We're just not checked in, right? We're just not paying attention. It's not like Adam was absent, right? Like, at least there you go, well, the guy wasn't there. He was there with his wife, and he stood by and watched it all happen. Men in the room, Adam didn't do his job, and the result was a curse on all of humanity. And it's not a stretch to say that the curse might not have happened at all had Adam just been who he was called to be. And it's not a stretch to say here and now that the world at minimum might be different and would most likely be significantly better if men would just do the priestly task that they were created to do by providing for and protecting their families. And here's the deal. Guys, if you don't have a wife or don't have a family, then do your job by learning and training to one day be and become the provider and protector of your wife and your kids. 
And this applies to men, young, old, in between, husbands, dads. Like this, this is your primary responsibility in your home. Not the sole responsibility, but it is your primary role and responsibility. Your wives, your fiancés, your girlfriends should know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you will hold back whatever wants to get at them. Your kids should grow up behind a solid front door that will protect them no matter what. Men, every wife, every fiancé, every girlfriend, every son, every daughter, when it comes to the home that is their life, should have all of the confidence in the world. They should be able to count on the fact that he won't ever leave me, he won't ever abandon us, he will lay down his life to protect us from whatever or whoever tries to get through that door. And we might not always like him all the time, but we will always find security behind that front door. One author I read this week said this, husband, and I would say I'm adding my piece to this, and men of all ages must therefore concentrate on being strong for the sake of their wives and their kids and their future wives and their future kids. Ungodly men are strong for selfish reasons and not for the sake of others. A godly man uses his strength to give to his wife and kids and family and neighbors and friends. He does not use his strength to take from them. Again, I know I keep quoting Jim. Jim Bergen was my youth pastor growing up in high school, a guy that led me to Jesus. Uh, he's a pastor at a church in Colorado, and Jim is, in my opinion, one of the, if not like foremost, if not the greatest communicator when it comes to stuff like this. Jim says, that, says it this way. He says, it's the role of every man, father, and husband to provide your wife and your children and those connected to your life, your home, right? A home that is centered on the truth of Christ, and to serve as a warrior priest that will lead them to bring honor and glory to God with their lives. And that will protect them from, from anything that might try to harm them or, or take from them, including yourself and your own selfish desires. And here's the truth, men. God will hold you responsible and will hold us accountable for how we do or do not do this. We're going to have to give an answer one day. When the wildfires of life show up in your front yard and on your front porch, the question is this, men, will you stand or will you fail? Will you stand or will you fall? Will you stand at the front door and say to whatever wants to get at your daughter, to whatever wants to get at your son, whatever wants to get at your, your wife, whatever wants to get into your own life, you're not getting in here. Or will you leave the door open for anything and anyone to come in and have your way with your family? Or have their way with you. Men, your house, your life, your home, and all of those in it will either be safe because you're willing to do your job. Or the door is going to get kicked in and someone or something is going to set a fire in your marriage and it will burn it down. Someone or something is going to set a fire in the lives of your kids and it will burn it down. Someone will set a fire in your own life and will burn it to the ground. And the difference maker, men, is this. Whether or not you, will, you are willing to take action on what Jesus says is good, right, true, and best or not. When Adam and Eve hid from God after that moment with the serpent, with they ate the fruit. If you go back and read that account in Genesis 3. God didn't call Eve to give an account for what happened. He called Adam. What happened here? Well, she, no, 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 no. What happened here? And Adam tries to first blame his wife and then blames God. Well, it was her, and by the way, it was actually you because you gave me her. 
fellas, not a good route to go. Just tip, right? Not a good route to go. And it's the same for us. God calls us men to give an account. And here, if there's, if there's one thing you get today, men, let it be this. Grab your phones, take a picture. If we succeed in everything else in our lives but fail in our primary and priestly role and responsibility to provide and protect our families, we have failed. You can have the biggest bank account, house, stuff. Don't, don't, don't show me your bank account as a means of success. Show me a wife that knows her husband will lay down his life for her. Don't show me your title or your influence. Show me a dad who's present and active in the lives of his kids. And I know a lot of us will say, like, well, I'm trying to work really hard so that I can provide them with a home. I can provide them with a house and stuff and, and vacations. And let me just tell you this. There are a lot of kids who live in big houses with lots of stuff and go on vacation without their dad. They don't want that. They want you. That's just what you think they want. Show me a young man that wants what Jesus wants for his girlfriend more than what he wants or could try to take for himself. And young ladies, let me just tell you, that's who you're looking for. That's who you're looking for. You're looking for a, for a man in your life that wants what Jesus wants for you more than what he wants or could potentially take for himself. And, and young women in the room, let me just say this, if that ain't him, then he ain't him. Don't walk away from that relationship, run. Here's what it says in Ephesians 5. It says this, husbands, love, choose your wives as Christ loved, chose the church and gave himself up for her. Which means this, he gave up rights. Jesus gave up his rights of being God so that he could be human. Jesus was 100% man and was also 100% God. I know that blows our minds, but Jesus, he gave up rights and privileges. And eventually he gave up his own life that he might do what? Sanctify her, which means this, lead her and help her look and live more like him. Having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, which means this, leading her and helping her bring honor and glory to God with her life so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, which means provides. You provide for your own body so that your body can thrive and flourish, so that your body can be healthy. You have to provide for yourself. In the same way that you would want yourself to be thriving and flourishing and healthy, you should want those in your life, in your family, your wives, your, your, your kids. You should provide for them in the same way. And cherishes it, which means protects. We protect our bodies. Sometimes we do a better job of that than others. Sometimes we don't do it at all. But Jesus says, this is the way we're supposed to live as men. And he says, just as I do this for the church. Why? Because we're members of his body. And it says this, therefore a man, this goes all the way back to Genesis. Paul, who writes Ephesians, quotes Genesis. When God creates man and woman and puts them together, this is what God says. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, which means do not give up. Do not let go of the rope. Do not step away from or abdicate your your priestly role and responsibility. Men, to hold fast means you have to own that responsibility. 
I told you I love Deion Sanders, right? Like he said, it's personal. They done messed up and made it personal. It's got to be personal. You have to own your responsibility, the priestly role and responsibility to your wife. Why? Because the two shall become one. Now, we're going to stop here. Next week is for the ladies. Which you're like, great. I promise you it's good. But something we're also going to talk about next week, this applies to both men and women, we're going to talk about an unwelcome and unwanted guest that's found its way through the front doors and into the living rooms of our lives since the beginning of time. We're going to talk about an unwanted guest that, that has gotten its claws into both men and women. We're going to talk about an unwanted guest that has blown up and burned down more marriages and more families, has burned down more sexuality, has burned down finances. We're going to talk about an unwanted guest, un, un, welcome unwanted guest next week, but as I wrap up or as I land the plane, right, we're going to end each week with the same fill-in-the-blank question, right? Here's what it is. As for me and my house, we are. And this comes from the, the book of Joshua in the Old Testament where Joshua basically looks at, at a group of people and says, listen, you got to make a choice. Choose today who you're going to serve. You can serve the, the ways of the world, right? You can leave your front door wide open. You can build your house on sand. If that's what you want to do, go for it. But make a choice. Don't try to sit in the middle. Don't try to sit on both sides of the fence. Don't try to ride two horses with one rear end. Choose. Choose. Make a choice. Choose who you're going to serve. And then Joshua says, but for me and my house... We'll serve the Lord. What our house is going to be built on is the ways and truth of God. What our front, there will be a front door in our house. Joshua says, as the man and his family, so I'm going to speak up for my family. I'm going to do my job for, for my family. I'm, I'm going to say that there's a boundary. There is a line. Outside, it may be different. But inside, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. And what that meant for Joshua was this. As for me, that means I stand at this front door and I make sure that nothing that wants to get into my marriage, my kids' lives, my family, my own head, my own heart can get in here. Because if you want to get to them, if you want to get to me, you're gonna, like, I've got a sword under my robe and I'm ready to use it. I've got a tattoo on my arm. It's actually a quote from, from Shakespeare. It says, once more unto the breach. And it's a reminder that there are going to be things that want to make holes in the walls of your houses. There are going to be things that want to tear down the walls of your houses. And men, despite the fact that we might be tired, we might be exhausted, we might be overworked and stressed out, you have to go into that breach. Once more, once more again, once more again, once more again, once more unto the breach, dear friends to stand in the, in the way in between the things that want to get to your family. If you want to get to them, you're going to have to go through me. So men, the question is this, what are you willing to own? If you look at this question right here, men, what are you willing to own and be responsible for when it comes to whatever fills in that blank? 
Because maybe you went home, that was your homework last week, was to sit down as a family and kind of talk about, fill in that blank. So, so men, what, what are you willing to own? Maybe you talked about it. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's stress. Maybe it's worry. Maybe it's sadness. Maybe it's confusion. Maybe it's anxiety. What are you willing to own? What are you willing to be responsible for for when it comes to whatever fills in that blank? What part of that is either because either you've been doing your job because despite the stress and worries of the world, maybe your, your family said, hey, in our house, there's peace. In our house, despite the fact that, yeah, sometimes we're sitting, there, there's joy. Joy isn't an emotion, it's a mindset. Joy and sadness can coexist. But we have peace and joy. Maybe it's because you're doing your job, and if that's the case, go on. Go on. Keep it up. But maybe what's in that blank is because you failed at the primary role and responsibility in your life. Based on where you are, men, and where you want to be, what has to change? What needs to change? What needs to be done? And I'm asking specifically, what needs to be done today, this afternoon? Maybe instead of this afternoon, you going and putting your feet up and grabbing a beer and sitting there watching the NFL for the rest of the day. Maybe today, what you need to do is turn the TV off and actually have a conversation with your wife and your kids. Instead of zoning out and saying, leave me alone. Maybe engage with your kids. Maybe Take them out and say, what, the weather's beautiful. Take them outside. Have a conversation. Go for a walk. Open your Bible. You don't have to, like, take your kids to bed every night with an acoustic guitar singing Kumbaya. I don't do that in my house. I know there's people like, well, he's a pastor. He must, like, sing his kids to sleep with a worship song every night. No, a lot of the times it's, go to bed. Man, there's opportunities for us men. That today can be the day you go, hey, from now on, I'll be that door. What are you willing to do tomorrow? If, we, if you do it today, can you do it again tomorrow? Can you string a few days together this week? What are you willing to do to put Jesus' word into practice? Not to just hear it and agree with it, but to say, I'm going to do something about this. For the sake of my own heart, soul, mind, and strength. For the sake of those that are connected to me. We're going to worship. We're going to sing. But I pray that as we go, we can see the opportunities in front of us and put defeat behind us. We may have failed, but because of Jesus, you're not a failure. You may have failed, but you are not a failure. Today can be from now on. Today you, you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you. If today you wanna to talk about what it means to accept and trust Jesus with your life or you wanna join our church, I'll be down front as we worship together. I'd love to pray with you. But let's stand together uh, right now. Stand where, you, where you're at. Um, I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna worship. But we're all gonna stand together to do this. Jesus, we pray today that your will would be done, not ours. We pray today that, that for those of us that have all the justifiable reasons and excuses to say, well, this is why and this is because of this, and that we would put those behind and we say, you know what? I may have failed, but I'm not a failure. And today can be my from now on. Today can be the day I begin to be that door in my own life, in the lives of my wife, my kids, my family, my friends, my neighbors, whoever it is. Today can be that day. Jesus, would you meet us in that space? Would your spirit breathe life into us? Would we find the courage to get up? Would we find the grace and the mercy that says you're not defined by your past? 
you can have a new present and a new future. And that's only possible because of you. Jesus, we love you and we worship you now. Amen. Uh.